grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Hi, it's Joe here. I'm thrilled to introduce today's guest who I've admired from afar for quite some time. Lenell Long works tirelessly as a global advocate for the needs and rights of intercountry adoptees. She is a Vietnamese adoptee born in the early 70s and she joins us today via Zoom from lockdown in Sydney, Australia. There isn't enough time in this introduction to cover all of Linnell's work and achievements, so I'm going to touch on a few of the standouts. Linnell is the founder of Intercountry Adoptee Voices, or ICAF, which began in 1988. She has built ICAF into a global network in the intercountry adoptee community and has provided one of the first worldwide platforms for adoptee-led organisations and individuals to collaborate, share and encourage one another, regardless of sending or adoptive country. Linnell has also built relationships with the Australian Federal Government, which is responsible for intercountry adoption and state central authorities in Australia. Over the years, Linnell has presented at domestic and international seminars, written, edited, and collaborated to publish extensively on the experience of intercountry adoptees, including the Color of Time book published in 2017. Linnell presented at the Hague Working Groups to prevent and address illicit practices in intercountry adoption and was invited to join Child Identity Protection as a special advisor. Linnell, you have been so busy and there is so much to talk about. So welcome to Adopt Perspective podcast. Thank you very much for having me. We've got a lot to cover today, but I'd firstly like to find out where your passion and commitment to advocating for the needs and rights of intercountry adoptees comes from. Can you tell us a little bit about your own adoption story? Sure, yeah. Well, of course, my passion does come from my own story, my own personal experience. So um, for those who haven't heard much about me before, I came uh, from the Vietnam War in the early 70s. Uh, I was only a five-month-old baby when my adoptive father flew there to pick me up. He brought me back. Um, My adoptive father and mother, they are Victorians and they live in rural uh, regions of Victoria. So I grew up on a dairy farm. And uh, they had four children, biological children of their own. I was in the middle as the only adopted child. So um, when they got me, um, you know, of course, at that stage, Australia was just coming out of white Australia policy. So I kind of hit the scene when, you know, there wasn't a lot of knowledge or understanding about race, multiculturalism, um, people from different places. So my whole childhood was one of growing up where I was the only non-white child apart from uh, Aboriginal Australians Um, and that for me was a very isolating experience because I didn't see 
anyone around me, you know, whether that was on the media in that day or in my communities who looked like me. And so that lack of mirroring really affected me um, in a deep way and, and led me to feel very ashamed of what I looked like, who I was, um, and, and, you know, I didn't know anything about my origins. Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, my adoption was done as a private one in those days before the Hague. Um, and so that meant that I arrived here and unfortunately, my paperwork didn't actually follow as it was supposed to. So not sure how or what the discussions were, but the lawyer who did my adoption in Vietnam on behalf of my parents told my dad that, you know, take her back to Australia and we'll send the papers after you. But of course, yeah. they never arrived. Yeah. So I actually didn't get adopted formally until I was around uh, 16 and a half years old. So uh, I sat in this country for a long time without any formal adoption. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what led you then to become involved in the intercountry adoption community and advocacy? Well, it was essentially that whole uh, lack of mirroring, the isolation, the feelings of shame. I grew up with all of that. And when I finally um, left my adoptive uh, parents' place, because they all, well, it was kind of a bit weird. They They went to overseas to Thailand to work as missionaries and left um, me here with my grandmother. I finished my year 12 and then I was on my own and I came up to New South Wales actually to study up here. Um, so I ended up being on my own at 18, 19, and I didn't have um, any connection with other people like me. So I was uh, very, you know, struggling. I was struggling a lot at that time in my life and yeah. I was at that you know, crux point where I was trying to get my education, find my place in the world, become a young adult, um, being responsible for myself. And it was, it was pretty challenging. So when I came to um, New South Wales, um, at some point in my life, um, in those mid-20s, I started looking for support. And I um, eventually stumbled across the Post-Adoption Resource Centre Park in New South Wales, and I went to one of their seminars for domestic adoptees. And, um, you know, that was, that was pretty amazing and it was very helpful and it was an awesome experience. But that, the session that they ran that day, it, it covered all the basics of adoption and, and what it's like for adoptees growing up, but it didn't cover anything about the things, the extra things that I was grappling with, you know, such as not having anyone around me who mirrored me ethnically. Um, being uh, being faced with racism, you know, on a constant basis throughout my whole life. Um, these issues that intercountry adoptees really face uh, on, a, on a much more, um, you know, profound level, I guess, than a domestic adoptee would who, who is white and looks much more alike to their adoptive family. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so I was looking for a place where I could have some support, uh, find some understanding, and there wasn't anything there apart from what Park was offering. And they really hadn't heard from too many intercountry adoptees at that time. In fact, I didn't even know what intercountry adoption was. I just knew that I was an adoptee. I didn't have any language for understanding adoption or for comprehending how it, you know, kind of impacted my life. I was, I was what you'd call now in the fog completely, yeah. um, you know, no understanding at all. So I was just simply looking for somewhere that I could 
gain some support, some understanding and help myself to, um, you know, kind of figure out what on earth all this mush was that was in my head and, and in my body, but yet I didn't have any words for it. And it wasn't until I read, uh, started reading books like The Primal Wound um, by mm-hmm. Nancy Verrier that, you know, suddenly I, I got a vocabulary that, that helped me make sense of my whole experience and journey. So it was quite profound, you know, all of the different little things that just came into my life to help me put together, um, so made sense of, of my life and, and what I was actually experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. And because nothing existed um, for adoptees born in one country adopted to Australia, I decided to basically start something. So I told Park at the time, I said, if you ever hear from any other adoptees like me, can you please let them know that I'm going to start a support group? I had had experience um, with group healing before that. Um, So I knew the power of group healing. I knew how profound it could be. I'd experienced it uh, in connecting with other other people who had suffered in the same way as I. And, And it made such a massive impact on my life that I decided, you know, this is this is how, this is what I need to find. I actually even went looking through, um, you know, the AA programs, they have Mm -hmm. a whole heap for Overeaters Anonymous, for people who uh, have suffering all sorts of, you know, kind of issues. I went looking for Adoptees Anonymous and there was none. So I was like, (laughs) oh my goodness, like if they're not there, then where are they? And yeah, essentially it didn't exist. And that's, that's really why I created ICAV. At that time, I called it Intercountry Adoptee Support Network, ICASM. Um, and, and yeah, it was pretty amazing. We started off with just a few people at the, at the time. And it was actually through my connections with Park, the Post Adoption Resource Centre. And because they, you know, I guess they must have really listened and heard to people like me who said, you know, our experience is a bit different um, to, to the average adoptee um, that's domestically adopted. And so they obviously started looking out and, and being aware of the fact that we had these extra things, extra complexities. And over time, they gathered enough of us together. And that's how we did The Colour of Difference, which is the first book um, that we did in Australia on transracial and intercountry adoption. Mm. So connecting with those adoptees for The Colour of Difference was really what um propelled me to to leverage off that project and off the amazing experience we all had as contributors to that book to say you know hey I want to keep this going I want to build off this and so I actually started ICASM um directly off that book after we after we compiled it and completed it yeah it's hard to even describe how important it is to um to make those connections and like the first time you read the primal wound or another book about adoption you're like oh whole you know holy hell this is my experience and then walking to in a room with people who even though they've had different experiences a lot of it's the same they have a lot of the same yeah. feelings a lot of the same issues and um and it's such an accepting feeling like it's a, it's a thrill almost just to connect with people who've got some of those same that same yeah. history yeah it's that instant connection where you can just share your experience with someone and know that they uh, just immediately understand it and you don't have to go too far into depth of explaining yeah. it it's such a relief when yeah. you've felt so misunderstood for so long yeah um, yeah and the books would be so important too because it's it's taking voices that haven't been heard and amplifying them getting Absolutely. that message out there yeah yeah, 
yeah park i mean you know i can thank park for why we have icav because if it wasn't for their book project and me meeting other intercountry adoptees i it probably would have taken longer for me to have formed icav yeah. um, but essentially i still had the idea there to to create a group it's just that it that that project really propelled it so yeah so important the work that you guys do you know jigsaw park all of these organizations that provide support and provide a pivotal place for adoptees to really connect in when they're when they're isolated struggling alone when they don't know that there's a whole network out there that they can tap into yeah. you know your your um, organizations are crucial to to being that first platform for them yeah so we've touched on this, but during my research for this conversation, I listened to a lot of your recent interviews and, and one word kept popping up over and over, and that was connection. Um, the loss of connection, family, culture, and identity is something that many adoptive people experience. And on the flip side, that building of connections can be important in the healing from adoption loss. Connection underpins why you founded um, ICAV. Why is connection so important for intercountry adoptees and how do you actually go about facilitating this? Yeah, it's a great question. And to me, it's the pivotal part of everything that, that I do. Um, you know, my whole beginnings was, was actually about being disconnected from my origins, from my country, my culture, my race. Um, it, it's, it's that disconnection is the profound trauma that actually happens, you know, when we get adopted. And that's what a lot of people just don't understand. So for me to find myself and to become whole again meant I had to go through the process of actually reconnecting with myself fundamentally. So that's why it was so important for me to explore my lost identity, my Vietnamese part that I'd never, ever gotten you know, to explore or have permission to even look at. Um, in fact, all of that shame that I grew up with in Australia meant that I pretty much blocked out any any part Asian um, that was even trying to infiltrate my world. Um, and it took a concerted effort for me to get myself out of what I now call my white washedness um, to actually realise that I should actively embrace my Vietnamese part. So it took um, quite some years for me to actually do that. And going back to Vietnam was a huge part of that journey of actually exploring and reconnecting with my origins and my identity. Um, and then you asked, you know, how, how, do, so how does that translate in ICAV in, in what I do in, in this organisation? So, mm -hmm. yeah, ICAV fundamentally is a whole organisation and network that's about facilitating connection, helping every adoptee who comes and connects into ICAV to give them an opportunity to connect with someone else and to share that profound um, bond that we have over, over understanding fundamentally what, what it is we're grieving, what we've lost, all the complexities that we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. It's the foundation of our awakening and, and coming, to, coming to terms with what being adopted means. So ICAV facilitating that, we, we do that on a, on a micro level, meaning every adopter who comes in, I try and connect with them and allow them that opportunity to, to share where they're at and to share what it is they need, what, what they're needing right now. And um, because you know, this is this network has been going on for over 20 years now. You know, there's there's 20 years worth of information in my head. And what I do is I make sure I make that freely available via the ICAV website and via the ICAV Facebook group so that all this information and connections 
are actually made available to all the adoptees who come into ICAV and allow them to learn off it without them having to go through it themselves and find all of those connections because that's taken me 20 years worth right I figure if I can help adopt this shortcut all of that and get them straight to where they need to their journey of healing can be you know kind of fast-tracked in in many ways compared to what I had to go through where I had to figure it all out step by step and find every single connection secondly to that um I mean, that's talking about connection at a very personal individual level, but I, in ICAV, I take that further. And because of my own journey where, you know, for the first 10 years of running ICAV, I really wasn't interested in anything political or global. I was just very focused on healing on my own individual level and helping others heal on that very individual level. But after I've found my own healing, I realized that there was more that needed to be done. And so we started to connect at the political, the global level, which means that's where the advocacy comes in, where we start to not just share our stories, but take it to the next level and say, hey, we actually want to connect in to those who have the authority and the responsibility for intercountry adoption. And we want to make sure that our voices and our experiences are actually heard by them and taken into account um, for, for policy and legislation. So that's the really important part that ICAV does now that we didn't do for the first 10 years because we just weren't ready. And I often say to people, you know, when you get involved in advocacy, um, you really, it's really going to be more effective if you've actually dealt with your own personal journey first. Yeah. Because in advocating, a lot of what you face and are challenged by can be quite invalidating. You know, having, having opposition to your views or your thoughts can be quite scary and triggering, challenging. And if you haven't kind of worked through a lot of your own personal um journey and traumas you can be triggered all the time and adoptees are always asking me you know how do you how do you stay the journey how do you stick this out for such a long amount of time and my answer is always because I've worked so hard on my own personal stuff that it means I can be in this space now on a continual basis without getting triggered every day because now I can I can work in all of this stuff talk about it very freely um Nothing is held back now. I don't have to feel inhibited. I don't have to feel scared of, of, oh, what if they don't like what I've got to say? To me now, I'm at the point where I don't really care if they don't like what I have to say. I will always be true to myself. And that's something that I've learned in my own personal healing that, you know, to get to this point where you can be powerful and where you can be effective, you have to be able to be true to yourself. And so much of our life as an adoptee, was not being true to ourselves we were like chameleons we had to fill in and fit in for what others or what we perceived others wanted us to be because it was never overtly talked about that we could be who we are or explore who we are and have that permission to do it right so yeah so it's been for me quite a liberating experience to journey through it myself and to come out the other side where I can now be an effective advocate because I'm no longer triggered by by talking about it or by being true to myself or by having people invalidate or or disagree. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't mind now if people disagree because it's not um, so raw anymore and it's not so traumatising for me to share and talk about it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I have to say that the ICAB website is brilliant and you're right on top of it. Like I was looking through and there's obviously things that you're constantly updating. So it's always the latest information on there. And that's that's no easy task. It takes a lot to be on top of what's on your website and making sure it's all accurate and timely. Yeah. Um, so well done. It's absolutely brilliant. Thank you. And I think it's really important what you're doing too, because as adopted people um, and intercountry adopted people, you can be your voice is better when it's amplified, you know, when there's more of you speaking and you've got that avenue and that vehicle to come together because people take more notice of the louder voice. Yes. So I think that's a really remarkable thing that you're doing. Yeah. And I think I was one of the first organisations to even use the word voice in my organisation name um, because I recognised very early on the importance of harnessing our voices en masse. You know, I mean, we face such an uphill battle to actually get the changes that we need for adoptees and adoptive, you know, for, for the triad in, in adoption to be better balanced. Mm. Um, and, yeah, the power of leveraging our voices en masse it cannot be understated. And that's yeah. why it's so important. We, we work together. We support each other where we can. Um, and I try and create ICAV as a very positive, uplifting space, not a space where we fight. Uh, I don't encourage the, the toxicity that can go on in some of these adoptee spaces. Yeah, yeah. Do how do you look after your own well-being as far as finding space to? I mean, advocacy can take up a lot of time. It can take a lot, a lot of emotional energy. And you have already spoken about how your experience and your time doing this now and and working through your own journey has has helped you with that. But do you put any boundaries around yourself or to make sure that you're not constantly in that headspace and dealing with it what, what do you yeah, do yeah absolutely I mean I I have my own family you know I have my own family life I make sure that that's a priority um and I make sure that you know I I will often do a lot of my support um to adoptees through messenger because I find it is a a more of a natural uh, boundary creator um rather than talking online through direct video it's it's much harder to maintain a, a safe boundary for yourself um, when, when you can type and text. Um, and, and adoptees, you'll find, you know, they can often um, expect a lot from you as a support person. And I found over the years that, you know, it's, it's, about, it's about coming to eventually understand what it is you're willing to do to to support fellow adoptees and about being clear in how you support them. So for me, I will always say, you know, I'm not a counsellor, I'm not a therapist. You need to go and speak to the professionals who do that. I'm here as a peer, which means I'll help connect you. I'll help, I'll give you, you know, like a guidance. But but you know, I'm not here for your personal psychologist <laughs> service. Yes, yeah. You know, so and and so many of them are, are so needing. Um, very specific supports and there's just not enough around um, who are trained and specifically uh, trained in inter-country adoption to do that so yeah so that's why some of the stuff that I advocate for is always around you know providing the right professional avenues for these very specific kinds of support. you feel are the issues facing Australian inter-country adoptees that need addressing right now? Funnily enough, when uh, when I saw you, you asking that, I just thought of an interview I did with um, 
Thomas Graham some years ago when I yes, when yeah. I did the book The Colour of Time um, and those I had a look again at those issues and I thought you know what sadly <laughs> they haven't still changed there. Oh, they're gosh. still there so I mean fundamentally you know the underlying philosophy of adoption still needs to change we, we are still working under a plenary system that mm -hmm. obliterates our right to identity and in the new organization chip um, child identity protection that that I work with now as a special advisor you know we're focusing very very much on the critical issue which is our right to identity until we get adoption legislation and all of the adoption um, professionals who work in this space and promote adoption to actually recognise that they are still fundamentally ignoring our human right to identity. Um, our current system of plenary adoption is, is just not adequate, you know, mm -hmm. and it's constantly repeating the same mistake that we have done for the last 70 years in intercountry adoption, which is to completely... Um, you know, obliterate our, our original identity. So for me, yeah. for example, when I was adopted here um, from Vietnam, like, why is it that I don't know what my identity even was? Um, how are we still doing adoptions where adoptees still are struggling to even be given access to their identity records? Yeah. You know, this is so wrong. And even though in Australia, you know, we talk about the lovely open adoption and all of this kind of talk and, and about having integrated birth certificates and things like that. Well, I'm still pretty critical because I would say they're just lovely little feel-good um, changes that don't actually address the underlying issue, which is we as children, when we're vulnerable, surely we can be cared for while respecting our right to our identity. And while that continues to be ignored, um, that philosophy of adoption is just not serving our interest at all. Yeah. So um, that really needs to be addressed and hasn't changed at all anywhere around the world. No. There's only a few countries that actually have anything that's better um, or different um, or has an alternative such as simple adoption. Or, um, some of our states in Australia do a really good job. So I know that, you know, South Australia, Victoria, um, some of those states have been doing really well in kinship care, um, in alternatives to adoption. And, and that is the right way to go um, if you're not going to look at the underlying legislation of adoption and change it to reflect our right to identity. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's there's a huge amount of discussion that needs to happen here around that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, I mean, there are so many other things. So, for example, one of the big issues I talk about is the lack of legal, uh, financial, emotional support for adoptees who are actually trafficked and stolen. This is a huge area mm -hmm. um, that affects a lot of adoptees around the world, not just Australia. And you've seen countries recently like the Netherlands who have put a suspension on all of their inter-country adoptions because of their investigation into a lot of the um, countries that they've adopted from. And really, you know, countries like Australia, we need to be following suit. We need to be doing that deep uh, investigation of our historic adoptions and we need to be making amends like we've done for so many of our royal commissions um, you know uh, the stolen generation um, the aboriginals who, who had forced adoptions all of these groups who have suffered and we now look back in hindsight and recognize that actually it wasn't the best thing um, it has ignored their rights 
Well, inter-country adoption has continued to be an area in Australia that our government will not look at and will not do an investigation into. Um, so I still talk about that very openly about the fact that Australia needs to have a deep look at what we've really conducted over the past 70 years and we need to make amends to the families and to the adoptees who are impacted and provide them with some reparative, restorative justice. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And until yeah. we do that, we shouldn't actually be conducting inter-country adoption because while you continue to use the same old processes and methods, you're just replicating the same mistakes. Yeah. And surely after, you know, seven decades of this, I mean, how, how, how far are we going to keep going really until someone calls it and says, hey, enough's enough. So I think bravo to the Netherlands. Um, and, I, and I hope that Australia might finally step up and do something similar. Yeah. Well, and it's not like the evidence isn't there, is it? Like oh, there's plenty of evidence to we prove all these things. We have plenty of cohorts, exactly. Yeah. We have the adoptees from Taiwan, the adoptees from India, the adoptees from Ethiopia, all of these countries that I could rattle off that have actually been um, products of illegal and illicit adoptions, and yet Australia continues as a government to ignore them and to do nothing for them. So, mm. um, yeah, and that, that's just wrong. You know, yeah. these, these people are, are struggling, um, struggling for support, um, you know, and there's just nowhere to turn to, nowhere to go. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the other, you know, I mean, obviously for me too, and you'll see in the, the post that we just shared today on ICAV's website, I've, I've always advocated very much that we need to have the third triad member be listened to and be elevated in these discussions in adoption. So that is very much about our biological families. When, when I can see that they've been invited and proactively engaged in the process of adoption to talk about adoption legislation and policy, then I believe, you know, we might be on the right track to actually looking at all interests from all parties and making sure that adoption is balanced and, and covering, protecting the rights of everyone involved. And it's a hard ask, you know, when you really break adoption down and look at all of the different triad members, what their needs and interests are, how do you protect each of their rights? It's a huge discussion that needs to be done. Um, mm. And not many countries are willing to step up to the plate and really do that yet. Yeah. So these are major fundamental issues within adoption that still have not gone away. They've still not been changed. So sadly, they're still sitting there. Yeah. Yeah. So we might have touched on this, but you might have something to add. Um, what are your thoughts on where inter-country adoption in Australia should be heading? I, I know that actually the um, domestic adoptees, the uh, Adoptee Rights Australia group, um, they're on the right track and I support what they're doing, which is to demand that the Australia does a long-term follow-up or a long-term investigation on the outcomes of not just inter-country adoptees, but all, all adoptees in Australia. Mm -hmm. Until that's done, like nobody keeps track of suicide rates, our mm -hmm. long-term outcomes. Have we survived? Do, are we thriving? Are we actually going okay? Are we struggling with mental health issues? Um, no one has statistics on our long-term outcomes. And yet governments still blindly make decisions um, about adoption legislation and policy based on the assumption that adoption is a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you know, you also get organisations who will do what looks like research, but again, presenting a very biased picture of adoption that doesn't include a comprehensive, um, you know, feedback from the whole triad. 
um, to actually look at, you know, well, how well is this going or not? And, and what do we need to change? What do we need to address? So I believe Australia needs to do like a Royal Commission on, you know, the long-term outcomes of adoption, including inter-country adoption um, with domestic um, and really make some assessments and, and, you know, work out then where should we go? How, how do we need to change things? There's been a lot of people in Australia that have been doing this work, making these calls and shouting out for a long time that these are the things we need to do. But unfortunately, you know, we're not, we're not really heard. Yeah. And our numbers in inter-country adoption now are so low. Like we had 33 or 37 adoptions into Australia last year mm -hmm. for inter-country adoption. So nobody's going to hear our yeah. group because we're so small and insignificant. Whereas at least with the domestic adoption, uh, domestic adoptee groups, you know, you've got very large numbers. Um, but, you know, it seems that, yeah, we need more. Australian domestic adoptees to really get involved and speak up and you know take take action and hold the government accountable for yeah. doing what needs to be done yeah so um, amplifying the voices of intercountry adoptees has been a passion of yours and we've spoken about the two books that you've been involved in but can you tell us some more about some of the past projects that you've initiated and been involved in because I know there's been a lot yeah, well, those books were amazing. But I can tell you about a current project, actually, not the past one. Um, mm -hmm. I'll tell you about the current one I've been working on and just about to release. So we've just um, we've just created a video, which is a pretty amazing um, series of videos, which are designed to educate, you know, three of our key kind of professionals who our lives interact and intersect with at many points. So these um, professionals are GPs, teachers and counsellors. And um, what, what we've recognised from a lot of feedback from intercountry adoptees over the, over the past years is that we'll often kind of intersect with these people, but yet if they don't know about our adoption, they often will treat us and they won't refer us to the, the right appropriate supports that they could have. Yeah, so I guess absolutely. what we're trying to target with a video like this is to try and shortcut the referral process and get it there earlier rather than later um, and make sure that adoptees are actually being led to the right services much earlier in their life when they're struggling rather than it bottling up for 27, 30 years and then suddenly going, oh, my God, I've got adoption issues. I didn't really realise. Um, I mean, that's how it was for me, right? Yeah. Um, and it's a lot to unpack when you've kind of at that stage of your life where you're trying to get a career and your whole life together. It would be much better if, you know, say in our primary school years when we came across a teacher, if they were more uh, educated on the things to understand about adoption, the loss, the trauma, and if they were saying to our families as well, hey, you know, if you thought about getting some support for your child because we can see they're, they're struggling with a few things, um, that would just be such a better way to kind of, you know, foster some some better supports in place yeah. for that person. Yeah. I mean, you go to a GP's office and the only yep. time adoption comes up is when they say, what's your medical history? And you're like, oh, and, I'm and you say, no, I don't have anything. And they move on. And yeah, they go, okay. on, right. They don't <laughs> even pick it up. They don't even pick it up. So our yeah. videos are actually saying what we want doctors to understand so that yeah. they don't just move on 
without even recognizing all of the stuff that adoption carries and that they go oh ding I remember watching a video about that maybe I should refer (laughs) that adoptee to a trauma counselor you know someone who understands adoption who can help them unpack all of this stuff so this is why we've done these videos and it's funded by the federal government um, of Australia Mm -hmm. um, through Relationship Matters which was the provider for our free counseling service no longer though that it's now done by Relationships Australia but Mm -hmm. um you know, it's very, it's, they're very amazing videos and I've just finished them. They're only, you know, they're only short because we know that professionals are very time poor. They're very busy people. They don't have a lot of time to watch, you know, huge documentaries. So we've kept them at that 10 minute mark mm-hmm. um, where they can just grab snapshots. And then if they are more interested in, in finding out more, you know, it sits on the ICAV website where they can have all the in-depth kind of, you know, resources mm-hmm. behind that. So um, I'm looking forward to launching that at the end of this month um, and the adoptees who've been involved in this project you know it's incredible to hear their voices and to see them sharing you know these very important issues that we all live that we can all relate to but yet for the general public it's like it's new they're like oh wow I didn't realize that adoption was so kind of challenging and complex and you know so much involved I hadn't really thought about all of that so that's that's why we created this this resource so it's been very exciting. So yeah. it's a group of um, individual um, intercountry adoptees kind of telling a bit about their story and, and that kind of thing, isn't it? Yes. And yes. I noticed, um, I haven't seen the video yet, I can't wait to, um, but I, I did notice that um, they're from different states and they're from different backgrounds and different genders, which is really, really important yes. as well. Yes. So how did you go about sort of selecting that and, and why did you make sure there yeah. was a real mix? Yeah, well, I felt it was very, I mean, like with anything I do, I feel that it's very important for people to get a comprehensive range of experiences from lived, um, you know, lived experience, because, you know, you can't, it's like, it's like with other issues, like, and the thing that comes to my mind is, is autism, right? When you know one person is autistic, it doesn't mean you know every autistic person well it's like that with adoptees you know it might know one adoptee but you can't generalize their story to every single other adoptee you, you need to listen to a broad range of adoptees yeah. with different experiences to really get that um, proper understanding of what adoption is all about so I felt it was very important to have that broad range so I made sure that we had adoptees from many different birth countries adoptees from the different generations so we've got adoptees in their 20s 30s and 40s mm-hmm. um, because our issues the way that we understand our issues they really change you know depending on what age we are and what what life kind of circumstances we're going mm-hmm. through um, and I felt it was so important to reflect that and then of course we've got the different genders so we've got three three um, men and five women um, And it's just awesome. What I really love about the video is that we've actually got adoptees who are not just Asian intercountry adoptees because so much of intercountry adoption is dominated by the Asian stories. Um, Yet we have many adoptees in Australia who are from Africa, Haiti, you know, and all these other countries, South America and all these other places. And it's so important that we hear that range of stories. Um, And what really you know, what's been my experience in connecting to so many intercountry adoptees around the world is that there are these universal threads of issues that come through regardless of our birth or sending country, uh, regardless of what adoptive country. So I know that these videos, wherever they will be seen around the world, I'm pretty sure it's a universal message. 
Yeah. Um, and, and I've tried to make sure I've captured it in that way because yeah. of all the years of experience I've had in, in working and connecting. Um, yeah, I, I've utilised my knowledge to be able to pull it together that way. Yeah, I particularly love the different generations in there too because, I mean, when you yeah. and I were um, were similar in age and when we were starting to explore adoption, there was no internet. Yep. Uh, you know, there was none <laughs> of those connected um, resources available to us. No. So it'd be very different for someone who's 20. Yes, you know, now. Looking now, yeah. There's a plethora of resources all created <laughs> by adoptees like ourselves and it's like yeah. you don't have to look far to find something now. No. You know, there's so many adoptees on, on Twitter or, you know, all these Instagram and everywhere. It's just yeah. amazing how much it has just flourished and snowballed and the momentum has really grown. I'm yes, hoping yeah. that, you know, the video that we've we've made will actually inspire other other adoptee-led organisations around the world to do similar because, yeah. you know, there's, I think a lot of governments and, and um, organisations who facilitate adoption, they don't actually, they haven't come to recognise the value, the huge value that lived experience can actually give if they allow us to create resources for training purposes, you know, yeah. that, that just hasn't been actually harnessed around the world. Um, so I think this video will really help people understand that, you know, our lived experience, allowing us to say it as we want to say it, not mm -hmm. have anyone kind of, you know, modify it or change it according to their organization's agenda. Um, it's really important to have that unfiltered uh, voice. To yeah, be heard. absolutely. Yeah. So it's going to be released on to the ICAB website, correct? Yeah. And yep. what was the date? 31st of August. Okay, excellent. Yeah. And we'll be putting links to the ICAB website and other relevant links up on the podcast notes page. Um, and so we'll be asking Linnell for the best ones to put up there. Thank you so much for joining us today, Linnell. Um, it's like a masterclass in learning about intercountry and yet we've only spoken for just way too short of a time. So I hope, do hope we have some more conversations in the future. And, um, and I know that there's going to be many people who are going to benefit from hearing this episode. Thanks very much for having me, Jo. So meanwhile, do you have a story that you would like to share with us? If you'd like to be interviewed for the podcast, jump onto the main podcast page of the Jigsaw Queensland website and complete the prospective guest form there. And note that Adopt Perspective can be listened to by people all over the world. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 3358 if you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Joe Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Thank you.